0: chapters forty three and forty four of taken at the flood by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain forty three oh very gloomy is the house of woe parium place without sir Aubrey, looked exactly the same as it had looked beneath his quiet rule strange that in the many forms which our grief for the lost assume there is none harder to bear than this changelessness in inanimate things this immutable aspect of rooms and corridors which are just the same as when that missing footstep trod them at parium there were few to lament deeply for the departed master unless it were in that closed and guarded chamber where Margaret parium languished under the care of the sick nurse there was no such thing as passionate grief for the dead the servants mourned him decently shed occasional tears by way of tribute to his memory sat late over their supper-table talking of his odd ways and his small economies against which they felt no resentment while he had been liberal in the maintenance of kitchen and servants hall falling without question into the routine of his forefathers and consented to pay for as many kilderkins of beer and as much butcher's meat as his ancestors had paid before him the servants lamented their lord with decent conventional grief but were a good deal occupied with their own mourning which was of the best and furnished to them liberally lady periam has shown herself quite the lady in providing our black the housekeeper remarked to her subordinates mr gansline had been given an open order to supply all things necessary and his assistants came backwards and forwards with bombazine and coburg and crape and parramatta and there was a pleasant bustle of preparation in the housekeeper's room and still room where the maids sat by the fire running seams and stitching bodies in an atmosphere odorous with glazed lining how did lady parium take this awful change that was a question which haply no one at the place could answer she spent all her time in seclusion shutting her door against sympathy the death-chamber and her old dressing-room and indeed that end of the house where sir aubrey's rooms and mr parium's were situated she avoided as if the dead had been stricken by some hideous pestilence and even in his last icy sleep could disseminate poison she had ordered all her belongings to be transferred to the bolingbroke room a handsome chamber with a bay window over one end of the saloon a smaller apartment next to this lady perriam transformed into a boudoir and sent for a builder to cut a door of communication between the two rooms on the other side of the bedchamber there was a door already provided opening into a fair-sized dressing-room these three rooms lady Perriam, brightened and embellished with not a few modern luxuries in the way of furniture ordered from the chief upholsterer of monkhampton an ashwood writing cabinet adorned with china plaques on which a modern artist's facile brush had sketched graceful groups of children at play in a landscape which changed with the seasons a pair of sofas an easy chair or two curtains of a pale apple green lined with the faintest lilac white sheepskin rugs to lie here and there like patches of snow upon the sombre gloom of the carpets a french clock which might have kept careless record of time's steady march for sophie arnaud or marguerite Gauthier. a stand for portfolios of engravings a small bookcase filled with choice editions of lady pariam's favorite poets bound in myrtle green morocco the acquirement of these things had been the first use which sylvia made of her liberty a childish employment perhaps for the solemn days between her husband's death and burial but the distraction served to keep dark thoughts at bay and the monkhampton upholsterer was the most discreet of men the funeral had been entrusted to his care and it was after arranging the details of that melancholy ceremonial that lady Perriam gave mr strudel the order for those little comforts which were needed to make the bolingbroke suite habitable lady Perriam dwelt upon this point she only wanted to make the rooms habitable there is so little actual comfort in old-fashioned furniture she said mr scruto with a natural prejudice against all furniture not supplied by himself heartily assented to this proposition he sent in the goods for lady Perriam's rooms under cover of the winter dusk as stealthily as if they had been coffins and the transformation of the apartments was made so quietly that the always-sitting Vem gericht in the servants hall passed no vote of censure upon my lady's proceedings mr Bane looked round him with unmixed surprise when he was ushered into lady Perriam's boudoir on the morning after his return the change in her surroundings struck him curiously it was as if some chrysalis of his acquaintance had suddenly developed into a butterfly those apple-green curtains of lustrous silken damask those snow-white rugs so deep and soft that he felt it a kind of sacrilege to tread upon them the ashwood bookcase and bureau on either side of the fireplace gave a new character to the room the bureau was opened and littered with papers two or three volumes of the poets in their green and gold bindings lay on the little rustic table by lady parium's chair the mistress of the luxurious chamber lolled in her low armchair, her beauty enhanced and set off by the blackness of her weeds shadrach Bain halted in the middle of the room almost dazzled by this unexpected picture she had lost no time in gratifying her tastes and had begun to live immediately upon her husband's death thought the steward lady perriam received him graciously but with a certain distant manner which he felt was intended to keep him farther from friendliness or familiarity than he had been during sir aubrey's lifetime she begged him to be seated but the chair to which she pointed was remote from her own mr bain expressed his regret for her loss his sympathy with her grief she listened gravely to his condolences and thanked him for them but she did not enter upon any exposition of her feelings she allowed her sorrow to be taken for granted symbolized by her widow's cap as mr bain's grief was symbolized by his hat-band i have not allowed the will to be read she said presently i thought it only right that you should be the person to read it as you were sir aubrey's agent and adviser sir aubrey honoured me with his confidence answered the steward i trust i may be also favoured with yours left so young in a position of no little responsibility you will need a faithful adviser he was thinking how lovely she looked in that sombre dress with the ruddy light of the fire playing among the red gold of her hair reflecting itself in the deep hazel eyes so dark so inscrutable when she turned them upon him with their steady gaze she was not afraid to look him in the face even if she feared him whatever the peril that threatened her it was in her nature to meet it boldly i am not particularly fond of advice mr Bane," she said and young as i am i feel quite capable of treading any path i may choose for myself without leading strings but so long as you serve the periam estate faithfully you will find me ready to place the fullest confidence in you as my son's land steward mr Bane fully understood the meaning of this speech he was to be relegated to his proper position as collector of rents and preparer of leases and agreements overlooker of improvements and so on he was no longer to exercise an influence over the life of lady periam herself she felt no gratitude for the liberal supplies of money which he had obtained for her no gratitude for the influence which had always been exerted on her behalf she took the first opportunity to emancipate herself from the bondage of his interference there was a brief interval of silence during which shadrach bain sat looking at the carpet with a clouded brow for once in his life the land steward was taken thoroughly by surprise he had not expected lady perriam to take this decisive tone to assert her independence so boldly he thought the restraints of her married life had schooled her into submission and that finding herself suddenly standing alone in the world on a height that should have made her giddy she would have naturally turned to him for counsel and assistance he had done his uttermost to prove himself her friend yet she now treated him as if he had shown himself her enemy she is not a woman to be swayed by kindness he thought she must be ruled with an iron hand easy enough to rule such a woman if one had but a hold upon her when do you propose to read the will mr Bane? lady Periam asked after that pause in the conversation whenever it may be most convenient to yourself lady Periam. it cannot be too soon for me i wish to know my exact position in this house i do not think there can be any doubt as to your position nor do you seem to have entertained any uncertainty upon the subject said mr Bane with a glance round the room you allude to my additions to the furniture of this room returned sylvia interpreting the look i can easily remove these things if i have no longer any right to inhabit parium there is no reason why i should affect a mystery upon the subject of sir aubrey's will lady parium the only will that i know him to have made was drawn up by me it leaves you sole mistress of parium during your son's minority had you been a childless widow you would have had only five thousand a year under your settlement and three out of those five thousand you would have owed to my influence sir aubrey proposed to settle only two thousand but he was more liberal to the mother of his child than he was inclined to be to his wife and your marriage settlement gives you the right to occupy parium place during your son's minority there is also an allowance of a thousand a year for your son's maintenance provided for in the settlement this with the five thousand which is yours unconditionally will give you six thousand per annum an income which sir aubrey could not have given you had he not possessed large resources outside the parium estate proper and i may venture to say without presumption that he owes much of that wealth to the careful management of my father and myself during a period of half a century six thousand a year a handsome income for the schoolmaster's daughter who had so often sighed vainly for half a crown to buy a pair of gloves for whom the middle-class comforts of genteel life at headingham had seemed as far off as the joys of paradise sylvia's countenance which had worn an inscrutable look during this interview with mr Bane, changed ever so little at this announcement the oval cheek grew paler than before and a sudden light flashed into the hazel eyes transient was this indication of emotion nothing could be calmer than lady parium's tone when she spoke sir aubrey has been only too good to me she said can you read the will to-morrow morning I dare say there are legacies to some of the old servants, and they will be anxious to learn their fates. To-morrow at twelve o'clock, if you please, Lady Perriam, Will you go with me to Sir Aubrey's room to look for the will? I know where he kept it. Lady Perriam's cheek, so pale a few moments ago, grew ashy white now. I have a horror of that room, she said, but if you like I'll go with you, nerving herself for the ordeal and rising from her luxurious nest by the fire she took some keys from a drawer in the desk and left the room followed at a respectful distance by shadrach bane they went along the west corridor across an open landing at the top of the grand staircase and into the east corridor which led to sir aubrey's apartments sir aubrey's no longer the door of the dressing-room which the baronet had used as his sitting-room was locked there is something awful in those locked doors of deserted rooms which have lately been inhabited by the dead lady Periam turned the key with a steady hand and went in followed by the steward the room had been cleaned and aired since sir aubrey's death and all traces of his existence thrust away the chairs were ranged against the wall everything in its place the window wide open to the bleak March sky as if in obedience to that jewish tradition which counsels the opening of casements to assist the escape of the departed soul the desk which mr Bane had to examine was not in the dressing-room he opened the door of communication between the two rooms but on the threshold of the bedchamber sylvia drew back with a scared look is it in there she asked with a shuddering glance at the tall funeral bed that bed which at its best had reminded her of a catafalque, the blinds were down and the shadowy room made darker by the deep brown of the oak panelling the wide and lofty fireplace looked like the entrance to a cavern come in lady perriam said mr Bane, looking back at her wondering at this show of weakness in one who had seemed so firm i want you to be present when i open sir aubrey's desk she followed him into the room shivering in spite of herself and drew near the table on which the desk stood it was close beside that awful bed so my lady thought shadrach noting her look of horror i have found out your weak point have i this disinclination to be reminded of your husband's death looks like remorse for some wrong done to him during his life he opened the desk with the key given him by lady Perriam, found the will in a sealed envelope endorsed and bearing the date which mr bain remembered as the date of its execution he looked through the papers carefully and found no other will not so much as a codicil and now lady Perriam," said the steward turning to her as he locked the desk tell me a little about my kind employer's death i have heard nothing yet beyond the one fact that we have lost him i can tell you little more except that his death was sudden awfully sudden i went to his bedside and found him dead at what time a little after midnight you were up late that night then said the steward wonderingly midnight was an unholy hour in the sight of the respectable inhabitants of monkhampton i am always late answered lady pariam i am not a good sleeper and sit up in my dressing-room reading i had been reading rather later than usual that night and went into sir aubrey's room to see that he was quiet and comfortable as i always did before i went to bed and you found him dead? Yes. Pray don't ask me to enter into details. The shock was too dreadful to be forgotten. The horror of that moment haunts me day and night. Is that why you have changed your rooms? Asked Mr. Bane. He was not afraid of questioning her now, not even of pressing home questions, now that he had found the weak spot in her armour. Yes, the association was too painful. Was no one with Sir Aubrey at the time of his death? no one mrs carter left him for the night about an hour before i went into the room where was Chaplin? he was suffering from an attack of the gout and was confined to his room did anyone go for the doctor yes we gave the alarm at once and one of the grooms went for mr stimpson who came before morning he said sir aubrey's heart must have been affected there was no coroner's inquest no Mr Stimpson did not consider it a case for an inquest though death came unexpectedly at last sir aubrey had been so long ailing that it could hardly be considered a sudden death mr stimpson gave the proper notice to the registrar he was very kind and took all trouble off my hands 44 i do believe you and i know you true the tidings of sir aubrey perriam's death made a profound impression upon the people of heddingham they had been but rarely favoured with the sunshine of his countenance at the best of times, and for the last year he had never been seen beyond his own grounds. Nay, his very existence had dwindled to a tradition. Yet now that he was really dead, it seemed to the people of Headingham as if a light had gone out, as if there were one star the less in their sky, as if things never again could be quite what they had been in the past. Perryham Place abandoned to an infant and a young widow of doubtful extraction it seemed a disruption of social order people speculated upon the life lady Perriam would lead now that she was her own mistress i dare say she'll give dinner-parties after the first year of her mourning said mrs Toynbee, who had not forgotten sylvia's ungracious reception of her only visit i should think she would go up to london and have her box at the opera and ride in rotten row said miss Toynbee. that's what i should do if i were a rich young widow the question is whether she is rich remarked mrs Toynbee with an oracular air we have heard nothing about sir aubrey's will yet i suppose we shall hear of it said the daughter with natural curiosity i should think so mr vancourt is most likely to hear and i dare say i shall be able to get it out of him and it will be in the illustrated news most likely after a week or two Mr Bane read the will at noon on the day after his interview with Sylvia in the presence of Lady Periam Mr Stimpson and all the servants except the two nurses Mrs Carter and Mrs Tringfold who could not possibly be interested in a will made before their advent to Periam and Jean Chaplain who had left Periam the day before the funeral to seek relief from his chronic gout in his native southern france The reading took place in the dining room dreary at the best of times but more than usually dreary to-day when the nature of the ceremonial suggested sad and gloomy thoughts the servants sat in a row against the wall dressed in their new mourning guiltless of the slenderest thread of white to relieve its dense blackness lady periam sat in an armchair by the heaped-up fire which was the only cheerful thing in the room sir aubrey's will showed some thoughtfulness for his dependants though he had taken care not to impoverish his personal estate by two liberal legacies he left small pensions to the older servants and a rather large pension to jean chaplain but pensions which they were only to enjoy when superannuated to every servant who had been a member of his household for the period of ten years he left fifty pounds to those who had served him over five years he left five-and-twenty pounds in recognition of the merit of prolonged service said the will there was also a bequest of five-and-twenty guineas to mr stimpson for the purchase of a mourning ring to mr shadrach bain he left the sum of one thousand pounds to mark his high estimation of services ably and conscientiously rendered during a period of many years to his dear brother mordred perriam sir aubrey perriam left his collection of gold and silver snuff-boxes and one thousand pounds and he further desired that his widow or his children should continue to the said mordred perriam all advantages and privileges which he had hitherto enjoyed as an inmate of perriam place that he should still occupy those rooms now tenanted by him and reside at parium free of all charge for the natural term of his life finally to his beloved wife sylvia sir aubrey left all his personal estate which with the income she would enjoy under her settlement would amply provide for her maintenance but in the event of his death happening before the majority of his eldest son sir aubrey left his wife guardian of the infant with the privilege of residing at parium during his minority sir aubrey's personality included money in the funds which would make a considerable addition to sylvia's income the additional lands tenements and hereditaments which had been acquired within the last fifty years and constituted sir aubrey's independent estate were to be equitably divided among his younger children after the death of lady periam her interest in the estate under the settlement being only a life interest it will be seen therefore that the schoolmaster's daughter found herself handsomely provided for in her widowhood rumour was not slow to spread the contents of sir aubrey's will among the gossips of monkhampton and headingham mr stimpson who did not consider his devotion recompensed by the trumpery bequest of a mourning ring took no pains to keep the particulars of the will secret it was sure to be published in the newspapers by and by and he might as well have the satisfaction of communicating the news to his patients thus it became known at headingham that the widowed lady Perriam had inherited all sir aubrey's personal estate which added about a thousand a year to her income under the settlement this exaggerated by rumour soon swelled to ten fifteen or twenty thousand according to the fancy of the narrator those who remembered sylvia less than two years ago as the village schoolmaster's daughter lifted up their hands and eyes and marvelled at this wondrous turn in fortune's wheel at dean house the news of sir Aubrey's death was received almost in silence yet it was a shock to more than one member of mrs standon's household to mrs standon herself the event was most unwelcome fortune could make no change in her dislike to and distrust of sylvia as sir aubrey Perriam's widow with a large income she was just as obnoxious to edmund standon's mother as she had been in the days of her obscurity nor was this all though nothing definite had ever been said by her son Mrs. Stanton had of late been cheered by the hope that he would find a cure for his wounded heart in Esther's calm affection. He had breathed no lover's prayer in the girl's willing ear. He had made no promise to his mother. But he had seemed tranquil if not happy in Esther's society, and there had been something more distant and yet more tender in his tone and manner of late than the easy familiarity of an adopted brother esther and he had read the same books and acquired a hundred fancies and predilections in common they sang dreamy german duets while mrs standon dozed in her easy-chair by the fire or worked at a lace bedizened pinafore for one of the small grandchildren it could hardly be possible to imagine a fairer picture of home than the family sitting-room at dean house of an evening after the seven o'clock dinner the routine of business life which kept edmund away at the bank all day rendered evening's repose doubly enjoyable when he was an idle man he had been apt to tire of these simple pleasures and had found evening in the family circle a long business now that he worked hard at his desk all day he was bright and sociable in the evening and never found the hours too long was sylvia's influence to spoil this tranquil gladness to introduce discord once again between mother and son mrs Standon trembled but was silent esther felt that the new hope which she had cherished of late must speedily perish what chance had she against that siren whom edmund had loved so passionately a year and a half ago and perchance had never ceased to love esther knew that he had his hours of despondency and she knew that despondency with him meant the memory of sylvia however sir aubrey's death may have affected edmund standon himself he heard of the event in silence and with an unchanged countenance he heard plenty of gossip about the event at the bank gossip which for the most part took the form of speculation upon the value of sir aubrey's estate but he said nothing at home he was equally silent even when thoughtless alan sargent broke out with some ill-advised remark about lady periam in the middle of dinner esther had but one thought a thought which was almost conviction edmund's unextinguished passion would flame out once more and while sylvia's widowhood was yet new he would claim the old broken promise her treachery would be forgotten or at least forgiven he would remember only that she was free and that he might win her esther was prepared to see the first sign of edmund's return to the old allegiance in an altered manner to herself he would be colder more distant unconsciously withdraw himself from that intimacy which had been so sweet to her and had seemed so pleasant to him to miss Rochdale's surprise however there was no such alteration in edmund's manner if he changed at all after sir aubrey's death it was to grow kinder warmer even they were more than ever united by their mutual love of literature and music they read schiller together to the secret disgust of mrs standon and ellen as the evenings lengthened edmund pleaded for after-dinner rambles in the meadows where primrose's and violet's heralded spring's carnival of field-flowers mrs standon never went out after dinner mrs sargent preferred the nursery to any spot upon earth at her little one's bedtime so edmund's natural companion was esther rochdale she was too pure to affect prudishness she accompanied him for his evening walks as readily and unquestioningly as if they had been brother students at heidelberg one calm april twilight about six weeks after sir aubrey's death edmund and esther had strayed as far as Cropley common that rugged heath upon which Mr. Standon had met Sylvia in the rainstorm. The hillside, with its knolls and dells and firs crowned peaks, wore a different aspect on this bright April evening. The western sky was still warm with the glow of sunset, and a waning moon shone dimly in the vault above. The distant sea line was purpled with the shadow of coming night, and one lonely white sailed bark glimmered far away upon the darkening blue edmund and esther had been walking in silence for some time each wrapped in thought when the young man stopped and proposed a few minutes rest before they struck into the homeward path esther generally ready to obey on this occasion demurred it's late already edmund and auntie will be waiting for her tea the superintendence of the tea-table was one of esther's evening duties let her enjoy rather a longer nap than usual Essie the sleep won't do my mother any harm and i want to have a little talk with you esther complied and seated herself on the grassy knoll which edmund suggested as the best resting-place the evening april on the threshold of may was as warm as many nights in june i don't see why we should sit here to talk edmund since we have been talking more or less all the time we've been out and are likely to go on talking all the way home Yes i never find myself at a loss for something to talk about when i am with you essie i suppose that means community of tastes, sympathy and so on eh i suppose so perhaps after all my real motive was a smoke may i have a cigar of course you may you know i am used to your smoking in that case i shall light up these evening walks wouldn't be half so nice if you objected to the cigar essie i dare say not i think you would rather do without me than the cigar i don't quite know about that answered edmund gravely i am very fond of the cigar it is true and if you forbade it i should feel the deprivation sorely but i don't see my way to getting on without you i never have been obliged to exist without you you see i can hardly judge what the flavour of life would be without esther esther's lip unused to express scorn curled ever so slightly at this remark You did without me very well when you were in love with Sylvia Carew, she said. I doubt if you were conscious of my existence in those days. Ah, Esther, that was a brief madness, a passing fever. While it lasted, I was indeed hardly conscious of anything except my folly. Never speak to me of that time, Essie. I want to forget it altogether. I want to put it out of my power to look back upon it. I want to blot it out of my book of life. Lady Periam is free now. You might win her after all,' said Esther, lurking bitterness audible in her tones. "'I would not have her, polluted by falsehood. I would not take her stained by the memory of her treason against me. No, Esther, I am not such a slave as you seem to think me. Lady Periam's widowhood makes no difference to my feelings. Were she to usurp a man's right and sue for my love, I would not yield it to her.' i have put the thought of her out of my life for ever i am very glad to hear that for your own sake for i do not believe she was ever worthy of you edmund smoked for a minute or two before replying no essie she was not worthy of me he said at last unworthy as i may be in many respects for i was true and she was false but there is one woman i know who is more than worthy of me who is worthy of the best and truest lover that ever lived i wish i could think myself not unworthy of her your new idol must be very exalted if you feel yourself so much below her in merit said esther trying to speak lightly she is the gentlest and most simple-minded of women yet i feel unworthy to ask for her heart because i once suffered my fancy to be led astray by a worthless woman when i ought to have found my happiness close at hand Nay, Essie, darling, I won't speak in parables any longer. It is you I love-you, whose sweetness has healed my wounded heart. We have been very happy in our evening walks, Esther. Is there any reason, except my unworthiness, that we should not travel side by side to the end of life? The girl looked up at him shyly, yet with a steady light in her soft dark eyes. You are in no manner unworthy of me, Edmund she replied but i will not accept less than your whole heart i love you well enough to be your adopted sister all my life yes even to see you happy with another woman and take comfort from the thought of your happiness but if you offer me any other kind of love than a brother's i must have all or nothing i will not have your heart if there is a corner of it that still belongs to lady Periam. why do you mention that odious name cried edmund angrily did not I tell you that I had put her out of my life? That for me there is no such person as Sylvia Perriam? Answer an honest man's honest question, Essie. Will you be my wife? The question was very plainly put. There was no purple light of love here to glorify the ancient theme. Yet Edmund seemed thoroughly in earnest. His tones and looks were tender and truthful. She who listened to him loved him too well not to be deeply moved that is too serious a question to be answered hastily replied esther gravely we are very happy as we are edmund let our peaceful life go on and let your question remain unanswered a little longer till you better know your own mind i cannot know my own mind better than i do now i want this question settled at once essie i want to feel that i have a purpose in life something to look forward to something to hope for something to dream about i thought while the pain of sylvia's desertion was new that i could never hope again never weave the old dream of wife and home without which a man's life is but a dreary business at best providence has been kinder to me than i deserved, desi i have learned to hope again to love again and you have been my gentle teacher i never tried to set you such a lesson at least as regards the last part of the business answered esther blushingly auntie and all of us were anxious to see you hopeful but i don't think anyone thought you don't think anyone thought echoed edmund laughing at the girl's embarrassment i know that my mother never cherished a fonder hope than that you and i should be one you wouldn't disappoint her would you essie you who love her so well i have no thought but of your happiness edmund you mustn't marry me just to please auntie that would not be the way to make your own life happy my life cannot be otherwise than happy in your companionship essie long ago you were my ideal woman yes when you were only a girl of sixteen then came that fatal dream and my love was lured away from you i know now what a false flame that was which led me over marshes of difficulty only to land me in the slough of despond come esther darling "'You are too kind to refuse me forgiveness for a wrong that has cost me so dearly.' "'I have nothing to forgive, Edmund. "'I cannot blame you for finding Sylvia Carew more attractive than myself.' "'Then, if there is nothing to forgive, all is settled, and you will be my dear little wife.' The cigar had been thrown away ere this, and Edmund's arm had drawn Esther's slender form to his side, just as in twilights gone by sylvia had nestled against his shoulder you mean yes esther said edmund trying to see her downcast eyes you haven't even asked me if i love you suppose i am daring enough to fancy you do just a very little homeopathically and not allopathically i love you with all my heart she answered with a little burst of feeling feeling so long repressed that it gushed out in spite of her desire to be restrained, wise, thoughtful for her lover rather than for herself. "'I have no wish but to make you happy.' "'There is only one way of doing that, Essie. Be my wife. The sooner the better, sweet. I want to feel that I have an interest in life, that I have someone to work for. "'I hope you mean to be very extravagant, Essie, and spend all your money upon yourself.' so that i may have to work hard for our children now darling it's getting dark and cold i hope i haven't detained you here too long but it was the business of a lifetime we had to settle even at the risk of rheumatism or influenza come love do you know that is the best cigar i ever smoked they went home together happy through the deepening night how could esther doubt her lover when he had so little doubt of himself End of chapters 43 and 44